The Water Values Podcast, Session 103. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utility, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. Um, before we get into it, as always, got a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, first off, thank you so much to KDI dollar sign dollar sign LE for the fantastic review and rating on iTunes. Uh, he gave he or she gave us uh, five stars and uh, said, best podcast out there that dives deep into the real issues facing the water sector. So thanks so much for that uh, great, there's, there's more on that review. I won't read the whole thing, but that's the opening sentence. Uh, so KDI, dollar sign, dollar sign LE, thank you very much for the five-star rating and the great review. It's really appreciated. It helps others uh, find the podcast. And uh, if, if you have not rated and reviewed the podcast, please consider doing so. It's simple. You just go on um, and, uh, and rate and review the podcast. It'll only take a, a couple seconds of your day. So would appreciate you doing that. I'd also like to thank, uh, the multiple people who, uh, contributed to the podcast, uh, through the PayPal button, uh, on the website. Again, that there's a little yellow donate button on the website, thewatervalues.com. It's on all the sub pages as well. So you can just go there, click that button and uh, donate in any denomination you see fit. It's really appreciated. Helps keep the lights on, so to speak, here at the Water Values Podcast. I uh, got a lot going on today. Um, I received a very nice uh, email from uh, a gentleman who uh, had two requests. I'm going to fill one of them today, uh, but his requests were to um, uh, provide longer interviews uh, than, than normal. We aren't going to go quite as long as you wanted, um, but we are going to, this is a longer interview than normal. And so we'll get into that today. The other thing this uh, listener requested was that I answer the question, um, uh, you know, what's my background? How'd I get interested in water? We'll do that on the next podcast, uh, because we have a jam packed session with a fantastic interview with Peter L. Nelson. He is a co-author of the book Water Capitalism, along with uh, Professor Walter Block. And uh, because Professor Block wasn't available and we had a listener request for this uh, topic, um, uh, Peter was was kind enough to come on. Now I think we we just scratched the surface in about a 38, 39-minute interview. And so we're going to have to have um, uh, Peter and Professor Wolf back, uh, Professor Block back on uh, to further explore uh, their ideas in the book Water Capitalism, because I think it's fascinating to, to get into this detail. Uh, and I will sell, say this, if you have questions that you want me to ask of uh, Professor Block or, or uh, Peter Nelson when they come back on, send those in. Um, would, would love to hear what your thoughts are on what we should ask uh, Professor Block and, and Peter Nelson. But the other thing we have today, another fantastic session with Reese Tisdale on the Bluefield on tap. Reese does just, and, and Bluefield Research does such a great job uh, providing this uh, kind of market intelligence, market analysis. I think uh, it's really valuable and hopefully you do too. Uh, but before we get on to the interview with Peter Nelson, here's Reese Tisdale with the latest Bluefield on tap segment. Well, Reese, hey, welcome back for another Bluefield on tap segment. Uh, great to have you with us again. Um, there has been a lot of talk lately with with the president uh, indicating the U.S.'s exit from the uh, Paris Accords. Uh, you know, what's the impact on water of, of the U.S.'s uh, withdrawal from that agreement? Yeah, I think, well, it's clearly, and thanks for having me again, Dave. I think clearly this is the topic, topic of the week. Um, but, and as far as, you know, its impact overall, I think, you know, a lot of these issues are already playing out and how uh, municipalities, municipal utilities, and industrial companies are already responding. So, I mean, it's probably worthwhile. I can lay out a couple points. Yeah, yeah, get into that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, look, at the end of the day, we're talking climate change, we're talking carbon emissions, so everybody seems to point their finger at the coal industry and what's happening there, what has happened. The bottom line really is this, if we haven't already talked about this in the past on the podcast, is that 
the coal industry is basically dying a slow death, and it's really not because of carbon emissions. It has more to do with the introduction of hydraulic fracturing and availability of gas coming from Cellus and then also increasingly out of places like Texas. Right. What's happening is over the next 20 or so years, we're going to see more than 200 coal plants that are going to be, de be decommissioned. There are approximately 1,200 or so coal ash ponds at about 350 facilities in the U.S. that are ultimately going to be shut down. And so basically trying to put positive spin on this for the water industry is that, hey, that's an opportunity. Water has to be treated. There's going to be fuel switching. New gas plants are going to be built. That is the opportunity going forward. On the municipal side, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a different story and, quite honestly, a little bit less clear in the sense that we're dealing with a number of municipalities who obviously feel strongly about climate change. I think after the fact, we're seeing mayors coming out, speaking out against the decision. But I think the bigger pressures on the utilities themselves, increasingly they're concerned, and you can see this in their reporting and their budgets, they're concerned about the impact of bigger storm events. And by that, I mean heavy rainstorms come through rapidly, uh, overwhelming the wastewater treatment systems. They're having stormwater overflows. And so they're having to figure out new strategies to deal with that. I think that's the, one of the biggest issues. And then I think the other side is, look, climate change is not just, you know, big storm events. It's also droughts. But like we saw in California, we've seen in Texas recently, even in Massachusetts last year, we were having a major drought. And so the impact on utilities and having to manage their water supplies and having a better, you know, stronger portfolios is, is an increasing concern. I think the bigger issue, I think, where their screws really tighten is they don't have any money. And so they're having to raise their rates or go to state revolving funds and the federal government, if there's no clear strategy on federal funding and where that's going to be beyond sort of the existing EPA programs, then where's this money going to come from? Right, right. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Uh, what, you know, what about the states that and the, the major cities that have said, look, even though the United States itself has withdrawn or has started the process of withdrawing, I understand that it, I think the, the last step is going to occur something like five days after the 2020 elections. Right. Um, um, what... What is the impact of these state governments and these large cities saying, we don't care what the federal government's doing, we're going to forge ahead as as though the Paris Accord was uh, in full force and effect? Look, I, I think the bottom line is they, for uh, water and wastewater utilities, they've been they've been having to deal with this largely on their own for, you know, for a long time. So it's not as if the, I, I can't, ex despite the, discussions about infrastructure investment and such that have been happening over the past couple of month, months or years, uh, the, these municipalities, the ones, you know, it's places like Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, uh, Atlanta, you know, San Francisco and so on, they're going to have to take it, you know, continue managing it themselves. Now, it w the, the challenge is it's pro more likely going to be a fragmented approach and everybody's going to have to learn from one another, but they all have their own individual issues and their own funding issues. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the way I kind of look at it, I think w when I was, uh, uh, down at a conference recently and, and Lester Sola, the, uh, the head of Miami's water sewer, uh, utility kind of said, look, you know, Miami is ground zero for sea level rise. And, you know, that just, I think that, that kind of matches exactly with what you said. They have to deal with it no matter whether or not the U.S. is in some agreement or not. They, they need to plan uh, for the impact of, of changing climate, regardless of whether the U.S. is, is in some agreement or not. So I think, I think you're exactly right on that point. I think, you know, it's really interesting you bring that up. It's been a while now. It was in the fall. I was uh, at a conference actually here in Boston. And it was, I believe, the chief engineer of Boston Water and Sewer. And, and he, the issue of climate change came up, and he raised it as one of their number one concern because despite having a good pipe network, it's been, it's been dealt with over you know, several decades because of consent decrees and such. But they seem to be ahead of it in many respects. But these storm events are a major issue. And so they were talking about, well, they, I mean, out-of-the-box thinking. All right, well, is, uh, is, can the city or the municipality – can we identify 
land land near wetlands that can be purchased, turned into wetlands to help capture, absorb some of that water flow. We've uh, He also talked about, hey, look at all the parking garages in the city of Austin. They're basically tanks themselves. Is there some crazy strategy that we could put together where all the cars could be removed and a big storm, you know, three, five inch uh, rainstorms come that can capture the water for a short period of time and then release it. And then I think lastly, there's, you know, there are smart water strategies out there. I think there's a company, Opti in particular, that has developed a smart water solution, which basically leverages existing uh, uh, holding ponds or areas where there's no water that can have gates on them. They can monitor the weather patterns and hold water and then release it as the stormwater as necessary. So you're exactly right. I mean, look look to, uh, look to the Netherlands and what's happened there. They've had to put up walls and break because they're concerned. And is the same thing gonna happen in places like New York or Boston? You know, the challenge is it's not gonna come cheap. And so uh, at the end of the day, we're gonna have to pay for this one way or another. So. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Uh, Reese, again, fantastic. Really great to have some of your insight again this week and uh, appreciate your time. And we'll talk next time. My pleasure. All right. Happy to, happy to do it. Good deal. We'll see you, Reese. Bye. Right, take care. Thanks. Well, as always, Reese does such a great job on the Bluefield on Tap segments. Really appreciate his time and his commitment uh, to helping all of us learn a little more about uh, water and the and the markets out there, and you know, gain some insight into uh, what is going on uh, in the current marketplace. So, uh, thanks, Reese. Your insights are invaluable. Uh, here we go with the feature interview for today. Uh, again, as I in- indicated earlier, uh, it's with Peter L. Nelson, who is co-author of the book, Water Capitalism. And so with that said, let's get on with it. Fasten your seatbelts, open the valves, and here we go. Well, Peter, welcome to the Water Values Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you so much uh, for sharing some of your time with us today. Uh, for starters, how about telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? I got interested in water pretty much by accident. Uh, I was, I started off being very interested in roadways. Uh, I thought uh, freeways in particular were beautiful things. I loved the bridges and whatnot. So I started talking about those uh, or uh, studying those and became a civil engineer. But then when it came to actually getting a job, I ended up in water resources. And I'd had a few courses and whatnot, and uh, I actually went back to school and got my master's in civil engineering with an emphasis on water resources because I had become so interested in it in my uh, work experience. My my co-author in this book that uh, we're talking about today, which is called Water Capitalism, is uh, Walter Block. I got associated with him also by accident. Uh, I happened to be looking at a website that I don't look at all that often, Uh, but it turns out that uh, that day, uh, Walter had posted a call for a co-author. And I thought, well, gee, uh, that's me that he's talking about. (laughs) And so I responded and uh, he agreed and uh, we were off and running. Great. You're, you're in Colorado, um, yeah, right? Correct. Yeah. So you're in Colorado and Colorado has, uh, probably the, the closest form of kind of, uh, you know, private water rights, uh, to what you're, you're envisioning, I think in the, at least in the United States. That is, uh, well, I would see that as worldwide. I, uh, we're English speakers. And so, uh, and we're United States citizens, and so we're speaking in our book mostly about the United States. But that's all uh, an accident of our circumstances. Uh, I would apply uh, our views worldwide. Okay, and and um, so you've mentioned the book Water Capitalism. Now, uh, before we before we kind of dig into that, uh, were you drawn to to Colorado because of the uh, private water rights system there, or is that just kind of an accident of where you happen to live and where you, you grew up? Uh, I grew up in California. Um, okay. I went to school in a variety of schools, uh, including Washington, D.C. and New Jersey and uh, 
and um, uh, Wisconsin. So I uh, traveled a lot, uh, around a lot while I was uh, uh, there. And when it came to looking for a job, um, I was not really anxious to go back to California. Uh, on the other hand, I had a lot of friends in Colorado. And so here I am. <laughs> well, good. So, well, let's dig into the into the book about water capitalism. Now, can you, uh, I, you've hinted at this already, but can you just give us kind of a general sense of what the book is about? The book is about privatizing uh, uh, water, uh, bodies of water. And so the subtitle is uh, The Case for Privatizing Oceans, Rivers, Lakes, and Aquifers. And that's that's what it's about. It's about taking uh, uh, bodies of water uh, and the water uh, from uh, public ownership and uh, transferring it into um, uh, private ownership. And uh, the basic uh, means that we see to do that uh, is uh, based on the Lockean principle of... Um, of um, homesteading. So you mentioned oceans, rivers, lakes, aquifers. So we're talking about both groundwater and surface water uh, in in how you are approaching this. You know, why don't you explain what you see as the benefits to privatizing water resources? The benefits are that uh, basically are predictability. Uh, a person who owns water. And when I say person, uh, I mean, I should say entity, uh, a, a, uh, an entity that owns water. So, it, I mean, it might be a person, but it also might be a corporation or a, uh, or a uh, joint stock uh, company or a, uh, a local community with uh, like a, um, you, you know, a, like a, a group of people who get together. Uh, it, it can be any of those things. But it's predictability because that entity or person has a um, owns the water. They so they know uh, what they've uh, got coming. Um, there there are certain uh, aspects of predictability that um, or non predictability that will still apply. In other words, the rains come when they come. Uh, if you don't get them, uh, you don't have water. Um, but that's written into uh, your ownership, uh, and so um, and so you can uh, plan for those uh, droughts, and uh, and so you be, can make your your uh, situation predictable. And so, uh, predictability would be the one word that I would use to answer your question. Got it. Now, I, and, and I ought to say this at the, at the outset. I mean, we're a little past the outset, but uh, uh, I reached out to you guys, to you and uh, Professor Block, because a listener uh, indicated an interest in hearing about um, your book and the ideas expressed in it and thought that, you know, th this is not kind of mainstream thinking, right? And it is, uh, it, it, he just wanted to, to have someone discuss the uh, the concept so that it kind of gets a broader at least at least we shine a light on this issue does that make sense it does and i want to thank that uh, listener of yours <laughs> i very much appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk to you david yeah so um if this would be global in application i mean one of the things i see is that in order to have a system of private ownership, you need to have the, the regulatory structure, the laws in place to do that. And, and so from a threshold question, if you're talking about regulating, you know, private ownership of oceans and things like that, how does, um, where does the law come from? What's, what's the construct that private ownership would fall under? We would, I, I would see, and I believe that uh, Walter would also see that as, a, um, a, a natural law situation. In other words, there would be no entity such as uh, the United States government or the UN or anything like that that would say, uh, here's the law. Um, it 
we would see a place for courts. Uh, we like uh, the idea of, of private adjudication companies providing that service, but because we see that there would be conflicts between people. In other words, this person A says, this is my water, and person B says, no, that's mine. And, uh, and so we would see a, uh, uh, a, uh, an adjudication system, but we would see the uh, uh, water law as basically evolving. It would be like the common law. Um, you know, somebody stakes a claim um, based on the fact that they have uh, uh, taken possession of something and, and uh, that's theirs. And then uh, a, a person comes along and says, "No, no, no, uh, that's mine." And and so we would we would see a uh, an evolution of a way to um, to define that. So you say private water adjudication entities. So where I guess I'm struggling to see where they get their enforcement authority. I mean, do the and let's say that they make their adjudication and one side doesn't agree with it, and they they spurn that and continue to act, you know, adversely to whatever order or, or, or decree that, that, that private adjudication company owns. Where does, I guess I'm struggling to see where that private adjudication company gets its enforcement authority. That comes from you and me, David. Uh, so if you and me are the, are the, uh, A and B that I mentioned before, um, we, tr uh, we uh, develop a trust for a certain uh, um, adjudicator. In other words, the uh, adjudicator, uh, you know, goes into business and uh, has, uh, has worked with uh, people before, and you and I say, you know what, we like the way they do that. And, and so we go to them and say, can you help us resolve this? Um, that... And let me back up a little bit. That is, um, that is after things have really come to a head. Um, it may be that you and I can agree between ourselves before we even get there. Right. Yeah, I, I agree that that parties. Um, you know, it, it's kind of like what's going on in the Colorado River right now, right? The all the all the folks along the, the, the Colorado basin are saying, look, we, we ought to figure this out together rather than have the government come impose a solution on us that, you know, may not fit, you know, there's going to be winners and, and losers in that. Let's, let's figure out who's, how, how we can settle this. I, I completely agree with you on, on that component of it. I guess, exactly. let's say that the settlement process doesn't work. The two companies or the two entities go in front of the the private and maybe even more entities go in front of the private adjudication company uh, to determine who, in this case, who owns the water. Um, and let's say one doesn't like how the adjudication turns out. What and and so they they don't comply with whatever the order or ruling of that private adjudication company is. What where, where's the recourse for the person who kind of won or for the entity that won? I. His recourse uh, is really uh, not that simple, but then the, the same thing applies to a uh, government uh, uh, a court. In other words, if the government court uh, comes up with something and uh, person B says, well, I don't like that and I'm not going to do that, um, uh, person A uh, doesn't have much recourse either. I mean, he he can of course appeal, appeal up the system, uh, but eventually he comes to a place where there is no appeal, and he's just not going to do it. Uh, so what happens then? And where you go is uh, somebody pulls out a gun and starts shooting. Um, we want to avoid that, uh, and. Uh, we don't, but we don't see that going to a government system avoids that automatically in and of itself. Uh, the uh, the thing that gives um, any kind of system its uh, authority is that people uh, trust that authority. Right, right. I yeah, I agree. You got You have to trust the system. If you don't trust the system, then it's it's you're you're doomed to failure from from the beginning. Um, so let's talk about how, how, you know, we get 
Well, let me ask you this. Um, and, and maybe you've already answered it, but what ha- let's say in the existing geopolitics today, you have uh, an entity out there who is let's, uh, similar to North Korea. They, are, they aren't really complying with international law. They kind of flout it there. And, and so how, how do you deal with an entity out there that is kind of acting in that kind of cowboy type of uh, a, a manner uh, with re- if if all the water resources have been privatized. Well, yeah, I kind of already answered that. I mean, yeah. it's it, it gets to the point where uh, where um, uh, you have to just either let that entity go and uh, be on itself. And the, the the problem North Korea faces, and even though North Korea may not. Uh, realize this, and it isn't that it's North Korea that doesn't realize it, it's that uh, the Kim Jong whoever uh, happens to be in power right now doesn't recognize it. Uh, But what happens is North Korea gets uh, ostracized and isolated, and uh, eventually uh, it's left with uh, no friends, no business partners, uh, even its friends, China, uh, might turn against them, and uh, they end up um, isolated. And that, that's the end result of uh, someone who is just not a cooperator. Sure, sure. So, so uh, that's a fair enough statement. Let's um, let's let's talk about the mechanics of privatizing, uh, because you know, as of right now. Uh, you know, there's international waters and there's domestic waters and all this. And so how would we go about, and I guess I'm, I've been focusing on the oceans in this discussion so far, but how would we go about, um, you know, getting those into private hands? Who, who's going to, who would, who would step up and take ownership of the oceans? Well, the ocean actually is uh, relatively easy. Uh, it's uh, more complex, I believe, to uh, talk about a river, for example, where there's a lot of infrastructure and there's a lot of users already in place. Uh, but with the ocean, uh, what you've, which is what you just now asked about, um, <clears throat> what you've got is a huge unowned underutilized, um, non-utilized body of water. What the oceans have uh, that, um, where they are being utilized uh, and where it is a problem is uh, fishing, I believe. Uh, uh, There there may be other areas ocean-wide and there may be uh, other things we can talk about in local environments uh, where um, where there's a local problem. But uh, worldwide, I believe it's fishing that's the biggest issue. And um, what we would see happening is that uh, owners uh, or prospective owners would uh, stake a claim to a school of fish and uh, they would husband those fish. Right now, you can't own a fish. And what that means is uh, when it comes to fishing, you go out in the ocean as a fisherman and you start fishing the heck out of the fish because if you don't, somebody else will get that fish. And so we are left with uh, overfishing. We are left with uh, extinction of species or near extinction. Uh, we're left with endangered species, whereas if uh, an owner uh, owns a school of fish, he husbands them. He takes care of them. He makes sure that they are a viable community. Uh, he makes sure that uh, he will always have uh, a fish that he can uh, uh, harvest and sell to the uh, community. Got it. Got it. I, and I agree with you. There's a, there is a tragedy of the commons issue in the oceans. Uh, I completely agree. And, and you, that's a, that's a great example. Um, so w- would, am I understanding right? So that the entity that owns the ocean, they could almost kind of like sublease 
schools of fish or with the the entity that owns the ocean you know they have they have you know in 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 law school we all learned about the bundle of sticks uh and you can you know you can lease one stick you can sublet a stick you can do all kinds of things with the what with the bundle of sticks that represent ownership so the owner of the ocean would have the the ability to um you know lease or do do whatever grant quote easements across certain stretches of of ozement for shipping things like that um uh, is, is that is that kind of what? Let me, let me give you a little bit of background on my view on uh, the mechanics of how the ocean is uh, is owned. Um, I I don't subscribe to the idea that you own the ocean like you own um, a plot of land. Um, even though there are similarities between the ocean and the land. Um, one can go out and survey a plot of land and uh, and say uh, you know my uh, my land goes from uh, covers everything inside a line drawn from point a to point b to point c and so forth um, in the ocean uh, you're gonna own several people might own things that occur at the same physical location for example i might uh, one person a might be a shipping company and they might own a uh, tract of ocean that it amounts to a shipping lane uh, where they can uh, move stuff across the surface uh, and per person b might own a uh, a school of fish that crosses under uh, that lane, uh, those two owners are not in conflict in the same way that as they would be if uh, if person A owned a uh, farm and person B uh, built a, uh, a skyscraper on it. Um, those are not compatible uses, but the uh, shipper and the fisher are compatible uses. And so there is not a... Um, there's not a surveyable, not necessarily, I mean, there might be some ways, but in general, uh, there's not a surveyable volume or surface of ocean that, um, that can be owned in the same sense. It's, uh, it's more like uh, if I'm using the water, I own the water. If I'm using the uh, fish, I, uh, I uh, own the fish. If I'm using a uh, surface uh, transit route, then that's what I own. Got it. So, so you're not you're not looking at this in terms of some an an entity owns the entire ocean and then then can can you know for example you know, lease the fish within the ocean or lease the shipping lane, uh, lease lease the water in front of a beach for people to swim and surf and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, and you know, this just popped in my head. What, what about like, what about recreational boating? I mean, ha, ha. well, I see two, uh, two questions there. Uh, leasing, uh, I'm perfectly okay with leasing. In other words, if I own a school of fish, I can lease the fishing rights to that school of fish to somebody. Okay. Um, so leasing is not a problem for me. Um, as for uh, a, um, a uh, beach and a uh, swimming uh, area in front of that beach, uh, that's fine too. That becomes more geographical in nature. And, and I said earlier that uh, there might be some exceptions to what I was saying, that some of it is surveyable. I think a... a, a a swimming area would be just such uh, an exception. In other words, uh, a, uh, a, um, a tourist uh, facility uh, might want to own a beach, which is land, uh, that's surveyable, obviously, but they might also want to actually own the uh, area out in front of that on the ocean side uh, where, where a person... Uh, could uh, a, one of their visitors could go out and swim 
or do any number of things. So, Peter, what what about the situation where a desalination plant wants to be built oceanside? I mean, the it, the way I look at this, the way you're describing it, that that entity would need to acquire the land rights, then would need to acquire the water rights uh, to pull the water from the ocean. And I don't, and there'd have to be some sort of agreement about the, you know, unless they're going to, um, uh, sink the, the, the discharge from the desal plant into the ground, they, they'd have to push that back into the water and we, that causes environmental problems. So, so what, let's say that a desal plant comes to the owner of the ocean under your construct, how, how would the owner of the ocean or the water resources in the ocean deal with that deal with that request to begin with they would just start using it uh and then after using it uh they would claim it is theirs <clears throat> in our book we uh draw an analogy to saudi arabia uh if you go back and you look at old maps of saudi arabia or uh, i should say the arabian peninsula um you'll see um <clears throat> along the shores, boundary lines coming in uh, towards the uh, land side of the peninsula. And then those um, turn into dash lines, and then they disappear altogether, and there are no boundaries. Um, That's because in those days of the Arabian Peninsula, uh, there was not uh, development. In other words, the land was not a scarce commodity. Today, in a similar way, the ocean is not a scarce commodity. It only becomes a scarce commodity when neighbors start bumping into each other. And so that's why those old maps show distinct boundaries next to the shore. Shoreline while the whole peninsula was not a scarce commodity, shorelines were. And so uh, people had, uh, had delineated uh, boundaries between their, uh, their respective areas. In the same way then, uh, right now today, a desalinization plant is free to uh, build next to the water uh, you know, they, they would have to get their land, of course, because land is scarce, but the ocean itself right now is not. And so they would build their plant on, uh, on land that they owned, and, and then they would um, start using the water. A boundary line, uh, uh, and that, I'm not speaking about a physical boundary line on land. Uh, that boundary line can be defined as, for example, how much water I'm taking. Um, uh, so the, 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 uh, we have to get a little bit flexible on our concepts of boundary lines when we start to talk about water, in my opinion. Um, so the, uh, the guy just starts using water. That only becomes an issue when somebody else starts using water and person number three starts doing it and person number four until it gets to a point where, hey, we're bumping into each other and we need boundaries, then it becomes a, an issue. And at that time, either they agree to themselves or they uh, adjudicate uh, who has the uh, the rights to that uh, water. Right, and so so you're. This is this sounds a lot like the Colorado, you know, kind of first in time, first in right uh, approach. Um, uh, is the only it, difference with Colorado uh, is uh, Colorado's, <clears throat> it is very similar, but Colorado's uh, um, isn't exactly what I would call pure. In other words, uh, a town, uh, if a town is running out of water, uh, a, a government agency or the state uh, has uh, a prior claim. They can uh, come in and... Uh, take that water because our people are going to die of thirst if we don't, um, or our town is going to die if we don't. Um, I would have no, um, I would have, in my ideal uh, scenario, 
uh, there would be no tolerance, uh, there would be no special um, rights for uh, government agencies. Uh, in other words, um, uh, you would be in line. It would be uh, up to you to uh, establish what to do in emergencies. Sure, sure. Now, so so if I can return, because initially when we started this conversation, and, and Peter, I'll admit I have not read the book yet. Um, okay. uh, so, and it, that, that should be obvious by, by, you know, by now, because I, I probably had, a... I think you're doing a good job in fact, <laughs> uh, for someone who read the book, you're very well, uh, informed and you're understanding the concepts, uh, very well. So, well, you know, I, I was a card carrying libertarian back in the nineties when Harry Brown was running for, uh, for president. Um, uh, but. Speaking of background a, a little bit, uh, one thing I didn't mention, I noticed that you are an attorney. Uh, the last uh, eight years of my career, I was an expert witness. <laughs> well, you're doing a good job on, uh, you know, sustaining. I don't wouldn't say this is cross-examination, but I am kind of asking you some questions on how to explain things. Because that's, you know, my, my goal in this podcast is to further understanding about water and water resources and make sure that people have the uh, opportunity to hear, uh, you know, varying uh, thoughts on how things how things in the water world operate, and it's it's pretty broad. And so, um, can, now that that you we've we've kind of established where the ownership comes from, because I was thinking initially you kind of quote you know sell the ocean, um, and I wanted to you know one of the things I I wanted to go down with, and my gosh, we're already at half an hour. Um, one of the things I wanted to explore was kind of Ricardian rent and fairness and things like that. But, but the, with the, with the, what you've described in terms of, you know, the first person to use it, you know, they just start using it until people start bumping up against each other. So if, if someone starts fishing a school of fish, how, how do they, how, how do you track what those fish are? I mean, what, because fish, they they can swim throughout, the, the entire ocean and there, you know, there are, uh, you know, stories of these turtles that just go from you know, one side of the Pacific to the other and whales that go from the, the, uh, Arctic down to the South Pacific. And so how do you, how do you get a hold of what you own if you own that school of fish? I mean, how do you, that I'm, I'm my, my mind is struggling with, with how you maintain ownership of that. Well, you're not alone, David. Uh, everybody struggles with that, and I do myself. And uh, this is one of the difficult uh, difficulties, not just in oceans, but in all things uh, regarded regarding a uh, completely free market approach to uh, economics. Uh, and that is that um, we don't know um, what's going to happen, what would happen, is that um, uh, in this evolution of law that I mentioned uh, as we first got started, uh, things will develop. Now, I can speculate, and I do speculate, as a matter of fact. My speculation, but, but I want you to understand that this is a speculation, and it is not an advocacy. Uh, my speculation is that uh, fish would be um, sort of uh, like branded, if you will. Um, it might not be a physical brand, brand like uh, like a uh, old uh, um, uh, beef cow, uh, but it uh, but it would be. Uh, it might be, uh, and this is kind of the way I would uh, guess that things would go. It would be a. Um, uh, a uh, biological um, 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 hybrid uh, type of uh, of animal. In other words, uh, I might uh, breed my all my fish to be orange in color, and if it's an orange fish, it's my fish because uh, I develop that uh, strain. Got it. Got it. So. Um... Well, I mean, this is this has been fascinating, Peter. I mean, we're over we're we've talked for over half an hour here, and and I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I know that Professor Block was uh, was unable to join us at this time, and I and I think we gotta we gotta have uh, both you and him back on in like a joint session and and 
kind of further explore a lot of these issues because I think it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I, um, I, I would I, I really uh, hope that that you and Professor Block can come back on because uh, I try to I try to keep the shows about this length. So um, uh, I would be happy to do that. Uh, also, I think that uh, we would both be happy if um, Professor Block came on your show. Um, uh, by himself, uh, because, uh, like I said, he's, uh, he's, um, while I know a lot about economics, uh, that's not my profession. Uh, that is his profession. Right. So, so can I, um, I want to, I want to take advantage of your engineering expertise while, while I have you, we dwelled on the ocean, so to speak. Uh, you mentioned that rivers were the more complicated factor. What, from, and I'm and I'm not asking about the pure economic piece. I can ask that to Professor Block when I when I'm finally able to speak with him. But from an engineering perspective, how, you mentioned the rivers were real complicated. How can what are the engineering issues in in privatizing a river? First of all, not all states. In fact, no other state. Excuse me, is like um, is like Colorado. Um, there are some, in fact, most Western states other than California are um, kind of like Colorado, but in all of those, uh, the state has taken more of a prior ownership, and they tend to have a licensing system uh, as opposed to uh, Colorado, where the uh, citizenry actually owns the uh, owns the water. Um, so. There's the old way of doing. Uh, I think it would be relatively easy to do what I'm recommending in Colorado. Um, I think it would be more difficult uh, in uh, in a state like California, for example, where uh, a lot of the water rights are uh, are um, based on uh, riparian rights, and, and therefore um, it would be difficult to just up upset the system because uh, because you would be uh, hurting actual current users of that water. Uh, they just, uh, you know, they'd just be injured by it. Uh, so um, um, I tend to, uh, am, I tend to be an evolutionist. Uh, my view is uh, that you would basically undo uh, laws uh, and and you would uh, evolve into something that worked for in this case we're talking about California that worked for California in other words right now you have a farmer who can take all the water he wants um, well there are restrictions but uh, in theory according to pure uh, riparianism he can take all his the water he wants from the river and uh, and ply it. Um, you have to work with the existing situation, uh, and, and so you can evolve a uh, a private system that works by uh, taking away the laws and repealing them. So, if you're just saying complete deregulation, laissez-faire capitalism, that is what we're saying. Um, <clears throat> but we, I. Uh, also recognize that uh, individuals can be severely hurt and that those, a lot of those individuals are relatively innocent people. In other words, they didn't, uh, they didn't ask for uh, a riparian system of water rights. They came into a system where, in fact, there was a riparian system of water rights. And, uh, and so uh, they just lived with the, with the uh, milieu in which they uh, found themselves. Um, I, I have trouble with injuring those people, uh, and so um, and so I think you um, remove the uh, you remove the the regulatory restrictions, and you let the uh, current users figure it out. Well, again, Peter, you've been absolutely fantastic. Is there anything before we sign off for good that that I have not asked you that you wanted to say during this interview? There are a number of things uh, that uh, we could talk about, but I think uh, they should all be uh, uh, saved uh, for a time when uh, when we might come on again. Okay, terrific. Well, I, again, Peter, you've been fantastic. I, I greatly appreciate your time, and this has been 
I, I found it intensely interesting. Um, my, my mind has been going hundred miles an hour throughout the entire interview. So, uh, I, I want to, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, for those people who want to find out more about you, uh, professor block and your book, where can they go to find that information? Uh, you can go online and search for water capitalism. Uh, as for me, when you go to look for me, uh, be careful not to just search for Peter Nelson because that's a very common name. <laughs> but what will really help is if you use my middle name, Lothian, L-O-T-H-I-A-N. Uh, if you search for Peter Lothian Nelson, uh, you'll find my blogs, you'll find my book, you'll find... Uh, you'll find a bunch of uh, information. Again, Peter, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. And I very much look forward to having uh, both you and Professor Block or, or just Professor Block, however it works out, uh, back on the show to kind of further explore these issues. So thanks again. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye. Well, hope you liked that interview with Peter Nelson. Uh, he's a, a fantastic uh, guest. Um, I, I, again, as I indicated earlier, we, we just scratched the surface. So I've got to have him and Professor Block back on. Uh, to further explore these issues, I thought it was just a, a really interesting, um, uh, you know, you know, paradigm that they're proposing, and I'd, I'd love to explore it a little more. Hopefully, you do too. Uh, again, as I indicated earlier, if you have questions that you'd like to be uh, asked and answered in that um, in that future interview, send an email to me, davidthewatervalues.com. You can, you know, or you can just uh, shoot it to me through the con contact section on the website again uh, thewatervalues.com again it's been a long show so I'm going to dispense with any further uh, discussions Um, you can find again the show notes for this section at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 103 and if you haven't done so already please rate and review the podcast Uh, consider a donation using the PayPal button on the website and finally in closing Please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values Podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the water values podcast thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me thank you for tuning into the disclaimer i'm a lawyer licensed in indiana and colorado and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice further this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment i'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.